with you. Let's pray. God, you have given us the sacraments as outward and visible signs of the inward and, vis in, and invisible spiritual grace you intend for each and every one of us. We pray that as we contemplate the sacraments, that we might further enjoy the grace that you've intended for us all along. Amen. Well, welcome. All good to see you here. Um, we uh, talked last week, actually, I guess the last two weeks, about um, the sacrament of baptism and, and sort of how it developed in a lot of ways. But um, it did occur to me that I left something out that's actually kind of important for us given, um, given our sanctuary, and, and that is the shell. Uh, so I just want to talk to you about the shell. Um, anybody been to, in a, who's been on an altar guild before, just in a curiosity, anybody been on an altar guild before at another church from our own? Okay, and just out, of, just out of curiosity, did your sacristy have a shell-shaped thing for scooping water on people? Gloria's saying no. Uh, Ellen's saying yes. Anybody who had their children or grandchildren baptized, was it done with a hand or was it done with a shell? Anybody seen a shell used before to do baptisms in a different Episcopal church? Yeah, it's actually become really standard that the shell shape, and you can buy it from C.M. Almy, or if you're really, really English, you can buy it from J.R. Whipple, <laughs> who's in England, that, that there's a scoop for the water that's shaped like a shell. It's usually made out of silver so that it costs a million dollars. That wouldn't be silver enough, Karen. Uh, and listen, you don't have a shell bigger than ours. I, I can guarantee you right now. Yeah, no, no, I know. Um, so, so this has actually kind of exploded in the church world since the 1940s or 50s. The clergy are baptizing people in a font, but using a shell-shaped scoop. And typically, it's a scallop shell, okay? I'll tell you in our sacristy, we have one. It's silver plated, probably. It may not be solid. And it's been to outer space, I, I believe. Does that sound right? So, so what's the big deal about the shell? Because I'll tell you, um, while the River Jordan, well, let me, let me tell you, the River Jordan doesn't have any shells. The Sea of Galilee has lots. In fact, the beach is pretty much all shells, but they're about that big. So it would have been really difficult for John to baptize Jesus with one of those. It had been about not even three drops of water, if that makes sense. So where did the shell come from and what does it mean? Well, there's, there's actually a really old tradition that comes from Greek mythology, and you've seen it if you've seen the birth of Venus before, right? That shows Venus being born out of a scallop shell, right? There, there, there she is. So, so that's an old tradition. And of course, this is an idea about um, sort of the, the, the source of divinity, especially the source of beauty and love. So, so I want to tell you, I think that's one of the sources of the delta that's gotten us to the river shell, because there is this recognition at baptism about whose you are forever. Okay. It's actually kind of a lovely thing to think about, right? That, that every baptism is like the birth of Venus. Well, it's kind of a neat idea, right? Secular, granted, but, but that's entered into the thing. The older tradition, though, really seems to have most to do, and I've done a lot of work on this, especially because we have one, um, really seems to have to do with um, Santiago de Compostela. Is anybody familiar with that place? This is probably the oldest Christian pilgrimage outside of the Holy Land. This is the, the Church of St. James in Spain. So if you've seen the movie The Way, starring Martin Sheen, or is it Michael Douglas? Emilio Estevez. Who's, who's Emilio Estevez's dad? That's Martin Sheen, right? Yeah, Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez. By the way, if you haven't seen the movie The Way, and you're really you don't even have to be that bored. It's actually a really nice movie. I mean, it's really, really quite nice about this pilgrimage route, right? That goes through the Pyrenees in France, 
all the way to this coastal part in Spain, and there's this church, and, and, and Santiago de Compostela, St. James, this is supposed to be where the reliquary of St. James, the brother of Jesus, no, not the brother, the disciple, this is the first Christian martyr whom Herod had, had killed. This is where his body is supposed to be in reliquary. Interesting thing about that church, they have a, a sensor, you know, like a thurible that you swing incense from, the diameter of which is, is like five feet. It's this huge pot that they, they suspend from the ceiling, and they sense that church every day with this just tremendous chunks of incense. Anybody been there before? I have also not been there, unfortunately. Um, that's not at the coast. It's another maybe 20 miles to the coast. So, so what you should know is that this, this pilgrimage route is something like more than, well, it's like 1,500 years old. At least from the 500s, people were going there from mainland Europe, and they were traversing the, 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 the Pyrenees all the way through uh, Spain and ending up there, and that was a really, really big deal. And um, the journey was really long, and people were hiking something like 20 to 26 miles a day, and it still took 30 days to get there. So you just got to consider that's, that's a really long trek. And it turns out that at the time, Spain, and this is actually in the Bible as well, Spain was considered to be on the edge of the world. If you went too far off the coast of Spain, you'd fall off the earth. That's what people thought. You can even find that in the book of Jonah. That's where Jonah is going to run away from God. He's going to Spain to the edge of the world, as far away as he can. So there's this really old tradition of pilgrimage that because Santiago de Compostela, the church of St. James, was on the edge of the world, when people made their pilgrimage, they brought back a souvenir. They went to the church, they completed their pilgrimage, and then they walked to the sea, and they may have thrown something into the sea as a symbol of what they're throwing away, but what they picked up on the beach was typically a scallop shell, and they would bring that back with them to their hamlets or villages or even cities as a symbol of their pilgrimage. In fact, the, the, you know, St. Thomas's symbol is a, a carpenter square with a spear in it or arrows. Carpenter square because he's considered to, to be the patron saint of, of architecture. He built the first church. And the spear is because, well, he got killed with a spear or three arrows, depending which story you read. Well, St. James's story, though, St. James's icon is a scallop shell. So that's, that's been the symbol of St. James for a long time. And people would go on this pilgrimage to the end of the earth, and they'd bring it back. And they were often, interestingly enough, either baptized or rededicated their baptismal vows there at the edge of the earth. And so as that grew, and it, it became a very, very popular practice, shells started to permeate mainland Europe, right? We're thinking France, Germany. Um, Switzerland, we're even thinking into Austria, these pilgrims would bring back these shells and their priests started using them to baptize babies because baptism for them came, became this symbol of a pilgrimage to the end of the world and back. Now that's sort of an interesting symbol, isn't it? Um, we can do a lot of other things with it, but, um, but uh, Historical, I've asked some pretty top-notch people, and that seems to be the big deal about the shell, going to the edge of the world and back. Sign of pilgrimage. It's good. We have this giant shell, and um, I'll tell you, it's bigger than the shell in the Houston Museum of Natural History. Uh, we don't have the nine-pound pearl that they have. <laughs> But our, but our shell is two inches broader in diameter. That's a real shell in there. And, oh, it's 33 inches wide. Of course I do. Gigantes. Tredacna gigantes, right? Comes from the Pacific. So talk about going to the edge of the world and back, right? Uh, yeah, well, it weighs. I'll let you know because I've tried to pick it up, which is a fool's errand. Uh, it, it weighs about 100 and... 65 pounds, that particular shell. Um, there is something wonderful about baptizing a baby as a pearl in God's oyster, isn't there? You know, there's also something incredible about it being our heritage. When you look out the window and you just, 
you see essentially um, the Gulf, right? I mean, Clear Lake flows into the Gulf, and here we are right on that waterway. Um, but that's the bit about the shell. Now, the reason I don't use the shell that's been into space is because it's smaller than the one that's the bowl. <laughs> um, also because I kind of like doing it with the hand. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of nice to put your hand on the, on the infant or the adult's head. But just thought you'd be interested in, in, in the shell symbolism. Uh, and, and again, that symbol of a pilgrimage. And, and the reason that became important is because I was hoping today we would talk about confirmation, which is another, another kind of pilgrimage. But let me pause and see if there were any other thoughts you had about the sacrament of baptism. And we've now talked about it for, I guess, two weeks and a little bit of change here. Pool, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, there's a there's a really famous guy. Um, well, he's famous among nerds called Stanley Hauerwas, and he goes to this church in North Carolina where they have, interestingly enough, a baptismal that's built into the into the um, what do you call that? Into the aisle, into the nave. It's built into the nave. So. Uh, you just imagine walking down our, our mauve carpet, and right before you get up to the steps, there is a baptismal pool, and it's shaped like a cross. And it's a pool that you can immerse somebody in. You know, it's there every week of the year with water in it. And interestingly enough, they keep vigils with the dead there, too. So if somebody dies, there's been, a, well, it's happened a few times anyway, that the first... 24 hours, the body sits right there by the font in, in, in his church. I mean, people do different things, you know. Um, be, make for a really difficult wedding, getting around that font. I just, you know, that move. Um, yeah, I mean, people do this all kinds of different ways. Have anybody been to a waterfall font, by the way? You ever had water come down? Um, those are pretty rare, but they, they happen. Of course, that's the, the, the symbol that the Bible prefers is living water, right? Living water really just means moving, right? The moving water. Um, does anybody know what we do with the water after we baptize somebody? Yeah, is this maybe good for you to know about, about sacristies? That's where the holy things are kept, like the chalices and the, uh, the hangings. The chalices and hangings are just darn expensive. I mean, you, <laughs> you wouldn't believe what it costs to have holy things. Um, in the, the place where the holy things are kept, there's often two sinks, although my church in, in, that I came from in California only had one, and you had to use it very carefully. There's, there's the one that's connected to the city sewer that you can wash your hands in with soap. And sure enough, it does what the drain at your house does. It just goes down to the sewer and onto the water treatment plant here in Nassau Bay. Um, and then there's another one called a piscina. You might even be able to use that in Scrabble. Yeah, it's seven letters. The piscina has a drain that goes just straight down into the ground. And the, the piscina is where you would pour any water that's washed, the chalice or the patent, because those, those contain holy crumbs. Does that make sense what I'm saying? We don't put holy crumbs in the sewer. That's where you put regular crumbs. So you put holy crumbs into the earth. Um, that's where we put any holy water that has become soiled isn't the right word, but you know dirty. And when we change out the holy water font that sits in the back, that blue bowl, that's where it would get poured. Your other option is to take it outside and sow it in the grass. Uh, same thing with the wine or the bread. You can't throw them in the garbage, but you can throw them in the plants. You can return what's of the earth to the earth, but you can't put it in the trash. They want you to know that we are um, extremely vigilant in these measures. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's interesting to see, if you've ever seen the altar guild, men or women, before or after services, the respect that they give the vessels, again, is something that, that I don't think you would even give like grandma's fine china. What do I mean? Unlike the priest, the, the altar guild members, they wear, they wear gloves. 
so that their finger, they don't leave fingerprints and they don't tarnish the brass or the silver. The priest is not a good member of the altar guild, I'll tell you. He just uses his hand, so I'll have a conversation with him about that one day. But, but you'll see them use these gloves and, and treat things that are on the Lord's table and that are going on that little table behind the Lord's table. We call that the, uh, the credence table. Um, you'll see people treat things with such reverence and tenderness, right, that, that almost the way they treat it increases the holiness that it had. Does, does that make sense what I'm saying? You know, if you treat holy things like they're common, in some ways they start to become common things. So it's a really interesting way to see how, how, people, how people deal with this. The, the, the altar guild, when there's a baptism for an infant, you know, they're really careful to use warm water in the font because no small child is going to appreciate especially cold water. It's just really interesting to see how people are thoughtful, really thoughtful with these things, thoughtful like they'd be bathing their own infant, but this is not their kid in general. Anyway, I, I, just, I just call to that attention because these things happen behind the scenes that we don't always know about. Anybody iron their tablecloths at home? Yeah. I do. It doesn't always look better. I have to admit, it doesn't always look better. Everything is ironed. Everything's ironed. You ever iron your napkins? Now, my wife has told me to iron the napkins before, and they look good when I work hard at it. Those purificators, you will not believe how ironed those things are. I mean, there's not a wrinkle in that sacristy. Um, I just don't even know how to fold clothes that well. And, and, and this is kind of the reverence that the things get. I just think we just want to call to your attention. There's one other thing you've got to know. I don't, I'm probably the only one who knows this. At Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas, there are different purificators than there are for the rest of the whole year here. The embroidery is fantastic and beautiful. I bet none of you have ever seen it. On Christmas, look at that embroidery if you can when the chalice comes to you. And we only, I promise you, it only gets used one or two Sundays out of the whole year. It's sort of lovely and reverent to behold, you know? In some ways it's like, oh, why don't we use it the rest of the year? In other ways it's sort of like, now that the secret's out, you, you look forward. It's, it's, it's pretty lovely. Okay, we better talk about confirmation now because I'm just going to blab on about being on the altar guild. Unless there are any more comments or thoughts about baptism. One, maybe one other thought. There were some people when we went to Israel that decided to get down in the water at the place, uh, one of those places where Jesus may himself have been baptized. This is a, a part in the river Jordan called Yardanit. And I think there's one of them here, right? Ellen, was it, you're the only one here, right? That water was cold. Oh, Terry was too. And I got in it too. And, and so there were three of us. And here's the important thing, right? Were you rebaptized in the River Jordan? This is that tricky theological question. The answer is no. Can't be re Well, it's, yeah, you can't be rebaptized. You can only be baptized once unless your first one wasn't good enough, and then it didn't count. <laughs> Isn't that great? Now, now, we're not that picky about that, honestly. We're, we're not. But, you know, there are some places, and I'm not throwing stones here. I'm not. Um, but, but there are some places that will say, well, if you were baptized in the Mormon tradition, we don't count that as, as Christian. Um, I think that can be a little bit silly, honestly, right? Because it's really about God, what God was doing, not about what we were bringing to it, right? But... Um, Anyway, we do this thing where you can, you can, um, you don't get rebaptized, but you remember your baptism. And truthfully, many of us can't remember our baptism. We were too small, right? That's okay. Remember is in that old sense of the word where you remember something. That means that something that has been dismembered has been detached. When you reattach it, you have remembered. So you're thinking about an arm that's been cut off that is then surgically reattached. That's remembering. And so it's very possible that the memory of your baptism has been dismembered for a number of reasons. You were too young and couldn't possibly store, couldn't possibly store it. Um, life circumstances sure can dismember some of the significance of being God's own forever, don't you think? I mean, honestly, I actually find opportunities every week to be dismembered from that. 
And so remembering is sort of reattaching that, that, that claim, which I, in some ways I think we call faith, right? Remembering that we're claimed as God's own forever and that that's an identity we're called to live in no matter how we feel, no matter how yucky we feel, that's what we're called to do. So from time to time, you'll have opportunities to remember your baptism. For me, I usually do that on the, on the, um, the baptism of our Lord here, which is once a year. Um, you know which Sunday to either wear lighter mascara, gentlemen, or to, um, or to bring an umbrella or just to skip. That's where I use the asperger, which is another really expensive thing that's in the sacristy. Uh, you know, it's like a wand that you put in a bowl and you can flick water at people, right? And, and you're not being rebaptized. You're remembering being part of God's covenantal community. Okay? I think I've taught baptism to death now probably more than once. So we better talk about confirmation and, 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 and what it is and why we do it. And by the way, we're doing it in November. Um, confirmation is this thing that really showed up late, later historically. So the disciples were not confirmed. This is important to know, right? Um, the disciples were baptized when they were adults, most of them by John the Baptist. There's a possibility biblically that Jesus baptized some people. We're not totally sure. The person who baptized you was going to be your rabbi or teacher. And this is important to know that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and you really won't find a legitimate biblical scholar who will tell you anything other than the following. John the Baptist was Jesus' rabbi for a time. And what does that mean? That means Jesus sat at John's feet and listened to John's teaching. He might have questioned. They, they, they might have had conversations. We don't know. Normally, that's what you do with the rabbi, right? Jesus doesn't start being a rabbi until John the Baptist goes to jail. And all the Gospels are very clear on that point. Jesus doesn't do anything until John goes to jail. And, and aha, perhaps it's because now his rabbi is in jail, so Jesus is going to carry on. John's work. Does this make sense what I'm saying? This actually is not very controversial. 95% um, of biblical scholars in general are, are in on this. We don't know how long that period of tutelage was, but, but again, we, 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 we get that. So um, people in the earliest churches, I told you, were not baptized. They had to apply for baptism two years in advance, and their lives and their faith were scrutinized because the small church was illegal. It was persecuted locally. Um, depending where you lived. And so the church really couldn't afford a scandal of including members of uh, moral disrepute. That would have been e extremely scandalous. So this was part of the process. In order to be baptized, which was the initiation right into the Christian community, you had to show fruits of your life in accordance with that new identity you were taking on. I told you that that changed, um, that really changed due to the teachings of St. Augustine or St. Augustine, who's decided that people are born with original sin and that baptism is the right that removes original sin from you. No parent would want to wait for that, right? So that's when baptism was happening earlier. Just to, to, to contrast that, the Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor, right, who converted to Christianity theoretically in 312 at the Battle of the Milvan Bridge. He's the one who um, saw the symbol of the cross. And by the way, the symbol he saw was actually the X, that's the Greek letter chi, with what looks like a P in it. Uh, that's the Greek letter rho. So that's called the chi and then the rho, the chi rho. The Christ in Greek starts with chi, and then Rho, which makes the R sound. And Constantine had all of his soldiers paint this symbol, the X with the P on top of it, on their shields before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Because what he heard was in Latin, in hocto signo s, in this sign you shall conquer. Okay? In the sign of the cross you'll, 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 you'll conquer. Which, by the way, if you've ever seen on that little flag that the lamb is holding, I, it looks like an H, S. Uh, there's, there's, this is one of the possibilities for where that came from. In this sign, you will conquer. IHS, you've seen it before? It's very possible that, in, it, it, that H is actually the Greek letter Ada, 
which looks a little bit like an H, which would be the first three letters of the word Jesus in Greek. <laughs> I don't know which one to believe. Okay, anyway. Constantine was not baptized, even though he held the Council of Nicaea in 325, even though he made Christianity tolerated and give, gave priests not just tolerated privileges, but started to give them privileges over pagan priests. He wasn't baptized until the eve of his death because... He believed that baptism was a rite that washed away all of your sins. You can only have it one time. So he waited. <laughs> he waited to make sure that at the hour of which he passed into larger life, he passed as a clean slate. Now contrast that with just a hundred years later, where people are doing it as soon as their infant's born. Waiting till you die versus as soon as they're born. Right. And again, what I told you about baptism two weeks ago is that baptism had had this really big change. Who's it for? Adults at the last moment of your life? Or is it for infants to wash away, to wash away original sin? Because the truth is, the doctrine from Augustine said if you have original sin, you're going to hell. Um, so, so you better be careful. And mortality is like 50%, right? So, so this is a big change. Well, well, then what happened then with your adult faith? How did you go from baptism being only for adults to baptism being only for children? I mean, within a generation, you make that transformation, right? What would there be for adults? And that's where I hate to say this word because it's going to sound cavalier, but that's when the rite of confirmation was invented in the middle, late 400s, early 500s. And confirmation then was invented for infants who had been baptized, who then needed a rite of passage into adult membership. Don't think about in terms of, you know, paying dues, but think about an identity that had to do with adult Christian faith and practice. Because there, there wasn't anything. There was Eucharist and there was baptism. That was it. Okay? So, uh, you clearly, I thought, I mean, I don't know if it's clear, but hopefully you see the need for this. The, the, the need is for somebody who is baptized, not necessarily against their will, but regardless of their will, to have a right in which they became an, 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 really an adult Christian who chose the faith for themselves. And, and that is essentially where it came from, and theoretically that's how we do it. Right? And the idea has, has fluctuated widely. Did any of you in the room who were confirmed, did you do the catechesis of the Good Shepherd? Did you have to memorize the catechism in the prayer book? One, two, three. So a few of you did that. Catechesis of the Good Shepherd is, all, is actually the, the title of a curriculum that we taught our, our children um, before things like Godly Play came out. We might have also taught older children like the sixth graders, um, to prepare them for confirmation, which was the idea that if you knew the catechism, you pretty much understood the faith, and so you were ready to live it. It's not a bad idea. Um, actually, I, I don't know many people that, that do that anymore. Uh, do any of you know where the catechism is in your prayer book? Yeah, it's in the back. <laughs> it's in the back, almost, right? It's almost in the back. Before you read the the um, Athanasian Creed. Somebody told me I should do the Athanasian Creed some Sunday, and I said, as long as I'm not there, that's fine, because I don't want to sit through that thing. <laughs> you think the Nicene Creed's long. Woo! Okay, so, so the catechism's in the back. And you know what a catechism is? Uh, actually, lots of faith traditions have it. Um, and and just, just to prove to that point, I mean, a catechism is like a staged question and answer. So it has a question with an answer, which is a pedagogically really decent way to learn. If you've ever been to a Passover meal, you know that there's five questions they have to ask. Every year, you have to do it. Everybody knows the answer already, but you have to answer, ask these questions. Why is this night different from every night? Most of the year, we eat bread without, with, with leaven. So why don't we eat leavened bread tonight? There's five questions like that. You do it every year. It's staged. It's memorized. It's not an honest inquiry, right? There's no answer you can give except, except um, this is different every night because this is the night God took us out of Egypt in bondage. You have to give that answer. Does that, does that make sense what I'm saying? 
Again, there's, there's no other acceptable answer than that. That's a catechism. There's one answer. This is one that we've talked about in, in sermons before. What is sin? The catechism says the answer is sin is separation from God. That's a really helpful answer, actually. It's really helpful. Because I grew up in a tradition that told me hell is separation from God. Anybody heard that before? Um, that one doesn't even make sense if you think about it logically, because if God is everywhere, omnipresent, then how could God not be in hell? Does that make sense? If there's a place where God isn't, and we call that hell, then God is not omnipresent. Um, C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce sort of makes that case. I had a professor that sort of said that, that hell must be the ulcer in God's stomach, which was, I was kind of actually an interesting image, right? Because it still locates that God is present even there. You, I, mean, I mean it. I mean, it's really kind of a beautiful, beautiful image. To, to, it takes seriously that God is everywhere at all times. It does. This is the kind of thing, by the way, that can sound like hair splitting, what I just told you. And the reason I wanted to do it is because this is kind of the stuff of confirmation, right? As a, as a, as a child, I don't know that you can really reason that way because your brain hasn't been formed to think abstractly. But that's an abstract thought, isn't it? To think that God is everywhere at all times and that that God might even be present in hell, or, or said a different way, hell might be present in God. I don't like that thought. It's not particularly comforting for me. Do, do you know what I mean? Except if I think about hell as real-time experiences I've had in my life, because I'll just be honest with you, I've lived in hell uh, for a number of years, not just in middle school. I, th I think most middle schoolers have had several entries into hell, you know. Um, but to think that even in those, my times of worse suffering, frankly, even, even if it was because of me, right, even if I deserved it, that in those times of, of separation, God was not absent. <clears throat> I think that's an adult faith. I want to be honest with you. I think that's very adult because it's very hard to reconcile. How can God, who's all-powerful and good and loving, be in places of unlove? I actually still don't know the answer to that question, even though I think I believe it, you know, in my head. I believe it in my head. I'm still struggling at times to get the rest of my being there. Um, this is the kind of stuff, though, that confirmation addresses, is what does it really mean to have an adult faith, not a blithe faith, where we just sort of spout off answers. This is the interesting thing, right? I just told you catechism has one answer. Well, that one answer that sin is separation to God, though, isn't the final answer. It's just the beginning. That answer, I think, brings up other questions, like the ones I just gave you, right? And that's the stuff of confirmation. Not that the catechism ends there, but that that's where adult faith begins. That those answers engender a new set of questions. Um, questions that, frankly, we're going to live into the rest of our lives. I mean, I, I don't know that you ever get to a point where you say, yep, I got all that stuff figured out. I think we get to points where we say, I'm comfortable in my faith. You know, I'm comfortable. But having it all figured it out is very different from being comfortable. And I think there's this, there's this thing that's really important in our society. Uh, I know this sounds like I'm all over the place, but um, about... 50 years ago, you kind of had this sense that you were in adulthood, correct me if I'm wrong, you kind of had the sense you were an adult when you graduated high school. 50 years ago, maybe. You really knew you were an adult when you graduated college, because really not that many people were college graduates. 50 years ago, right? It was kind of a rare thing. Only 50% of the population did that, right? I ask you now, particularly if you have kids, when do kids know they're adults now? What's their rite of passage from being a kid to being an adult? Is it going to college? I don't think so. Is it getting a master's degree? I don't know. I know a lot of people with master's degrees that live at home. Is it moving out of the home? Well, I'm not sure. For me, it was when I got married, kind of. <laughs> 
although my adulthood still, still felt very vulnerable at 24. I mean, really vulnerable. My parents sure told me a lot of advice in such ways that I, I felt like I was supposed to take it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Which made for a fragile adulthood. Um, I think in my parents' minds, I might have been an adult when I had a kid. I was like, I mean, when I had a baby, I don't know that I, had, I don't know that adopting a kid did it for that. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting thing. When did your parents think you were adults? This is an interesting question, right? I think a lot of kids really struggle with how do I become an adult now? I can tell you that there are really wrong choices, and, 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 and you know this. Um, we used to wonder why it is, and sometimes you get this out of the horse's mouth, why is it that in really economically depressed areas that there's a much higher rate of teen pregnancy? Do you know this? Economically depressed areas have a much higher rate of teen pregnancy. Because having a baby is what makes you an adult. Now that may sound silly. You may say, Mike, that's not what they're thinking. Maybe not entirely. Maybe they're not thinking at all. But I have heard from people that definition. When I have a kid, then I'm a grown-up. Do you know what else makes you a grown-up? I've heard that one too. Or at least you have an adult responsibility. See, I'm not convinced that you become an adult. I just think you have adult cares. Um, but I want to say I think it's a lurking factor, particularly uh, in, in where we were in, in East Atlanta. And I'll tell you, on the boys' side, you became an adult when you went to jail. Because if the government, you know, if the, if the DA tried you as an adult, you could have been 14. But if you were tried as an adult, they think I'm an adult. I know that sounds crazy, because who would want that? But there is a real lack of a rite of passage from youth to adulthood. Um, and whether you buy it completely, I, I don't think it is complete, but I just want you to consider partially that's, that's kind of what's going on. And then for, for people like me who were baptized as adults when they were 10, I was 10. I mean, really? I was an adult at 10? And, and, and this is what we're talking about confirmation, right? Confirmation is your passage from youth to adulthood in the eyes of the church. This is when you go from a faith that was given to you to a faith that you assume. And of course, everybody ages differently, and everybody's able to make commitments differently. I just celebrated a wedding for a 21-year-old, and you know, my gut, I thought, oh, he's so young, <laughs> 21, because I was imagining myself at 21. I think I was probably too young at 24. Anyway, um, 13 years later, we're working um, still. <laughs> it's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work. 21. These were rare individuals. They probably could have done it when they were 19 and still would have worked, you know, and it's good. Every, everybody's different that way. But, but this is really the goal here, is that this is something that carries you from being a child to an adult. This is a signifier that you've moved from an inherited faith to one that you've claimed for yourself. This is a symbol, really, and it's, it's, I think it's a little more open-ended. Not that you have conformed to the teaching of the church, but that you have confirmed confirmed that the faith that the faith that you're living into and the faith that you know is the one you intend to reside in the rest of your life. That's strong. I felt like that when I was 10. I just didn't know what I was doing. Does, does it make sense what I'm saying? Of course, I didn't know what my marriage was going to look like at 37 when I was 35 either. <laughs> I don't know if that one makes sense. Just two years ago, I didn't know where we'd be now. Um, not that we're any different place, but life circumstances have been really, really different. You ever have moments like that in your marriage, right? They sneak up on you, you know, and they don't stop. <laughs> it's the hard thing, isn't it? That they don't stop. You sort of wish that they would. Whew, weather that one. We're good. Okay. God, that'll do it. <laughs> that'll do us for a while. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> So, so in some ways, I think confirmation works in that way, right? And I think no matter what happens in life, we, we, we don't know what it's going to be, but confirmation is our best intention at the moment that we do it. Um, 
to say, regardless of what happens in life, so help me God, and by the way, please help me God, I intend to reside in the faith community. Whether that means going to church or not, this is where I'm putting my fundamental allegiance. You know, we do this in a ceremony where a bishop is the one that confirms. Right? And so in general, I don't actually know even in a small diocese that a bishop does the classes. I don't know any bishop that does confirmation preparation. Does anybody know a bishop that does that? You see, they're too busy. Back in the, the, the days of the earliest church, bishops weren't like they are now, where there was one over the whole state of Texas. Well, I know that there's two over the whole state. Are there three? Diocese of Texas, not even the whole state. Yeah, well, that's Diocese of Texas is pretty darn big, you know. Is there West Texas? Is there East Texas too? There's West Texas. There's the Valley. There's there's like five. So there's five in Texas, but really there would have been more like five bishops in Houston, just to give you an idea. And congregations didn't have 200; they had about 20. So you just put that in perspective, right? So in the earliest days, bishops may have been people overseeing this directly. And then that, as the scale of things grew and the geography grew, that changed up, right? So essentially what happens now is that the priest, or sometimes the youth minister, is the one who prepares kids by going through the catechism or Bible study or talking about their own foundational faith experiences, right? And, and then everyone does it differently. Is any answer acceptable to these kinds of questions? Or... Um, do people have to give the right answer? Do, do you know what I mean? How many people here have been confirmed? And, and when you were confirmed in whatever tradition, whether it was Roman or Lutheran or, or Episcopal, I think Presbyterians confirmed too, right? And I think Methodists do it too. Did you have to give, did you have in your head, I have to give a certain answer to these questions? How many would say, yes, I have to give like a right answer to get through? Yeah, so that's the lion's share of people, right? And in some ways, you think about it, you, that makes sense, because you, you're supposed to represent the institutional Christianity. But in another sense, I'm not sure that that's confirming the faith you have as much as it is conforming, conforming to the faith the priest wants you to have. Does, does, does it make sense what I'm saying? Now, there's always a tension there, right? Because what if in your confirmation, this is when you're going to become an adult, I told him the faith. The question is, tell me about your belief in God. Well, I don't really believe God's real or anything, but this is a nice church. Well, what do you do with that, right? They were honest. <laughs> well, then why do you want to be confirmed? I'm really looking forward to the reception. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> Well, that's a real possibility, right? That's a possibility. Of course, most... most kids who are like normally adjusted know better than to say those things that they're thinking, right? I mean, we sort of teach our kids that you don't, you don't always tell the truth, right? Um, which, is in, which is an interesting thing, right? And it makes it difficult really to think about how do you really prepare people for this, it's really a day, right? We're a bishop who doesn't know much about you. They may meet with you the night before. Jim Mathis in San Diego would sometimes do that. He'd meet with confirmands for maybe an hour and, and answer questions they had, you know. Um, they don't know much about you, and they're the ones that are going to be confirming you. Um, how, do you. How do you really prepare people for that, knowing that it's supposed to represent this transition from childhood to adulthood in faith? I'm just, I'm trying to lay before you, it's really complicated, it's really hard to think about how you engineer that to be honoring to all people in their faith journey, right? But that's what we try to do. Yes, sir? Yeah, so Eddie said he grew up Baptist and didn't get confirmed until he was over 30, and actually that was my own experience. I, like, I was baptized at 10 in the Southern Baptist Church, and I got confirmed when I was 32, 
31, something like that. I think because I just felt at home in the Episcopal Church in a way I had never felt at home in church in my life. Now, as a boy, I felt very at home in church because that's all I ever knew. But then as I started to travel around, I had these questions that I was told I wasn't supposed to have. And, and, I, and I knew the right answers to all the questions, but, but I didn't feel like they were the right answers anymore. And so then I went to this other church that was kind of countryish and it's just a little weird, but I felt really at home in the liturgy, you know? And, and, I, and, and I knew, honestly, and everybody's journey is different. I mean, that's the interesting thing. I had studied at a, a Jesuit seminary and a Baptist seminary and a Lutheran seminary and a Methodist seminary. I'd been uh, going to a Presbyterian youth group. Um, as I said, I'd come up Baptist. I'd, I'd, I'd grown up in the Church of Christ. I mean, I'd really kind of been all over the block. The only thing I really, oh, I, yeah, I did. I went to a Catholic school. So I'd been all over the place, and I got to the Episcopal Church, and honestly, it was the last stop. If the Episcopal Church wasn't it, I was done. I mean, I just, I was done. And I had a lot of reasons to be done, but I just, I wasn't, it was the opposite. I sort of thought, okay, like I really wanted this to work, and it did, and um, I knew I could confirm that this was my intent, regardless of my church attendance, was to live in this kind of faith setting. Uh, mainly because I knew there was room for me. You know, no two Episcopalians really think exactly alike, which means there's room for me. <laughs> uh, there was this heavy emphasis on social justice and, and God working mysteriously, you know, bigger than I can imagine. And then there was a liturgy that made sense. You know, the words were thoughtful and, and resonated deeply. And, and, and that was confirmation for me, you know, at, 30, at 31 and 32. And in some ways, right, that trajectory probably represents what people were doing in early times. I don't mean it's better. I just mean it's representative, right? I mean, I, my brain had fully formed, right? I had my frontal lobe. I had some sense of what I was doing, and so that's what it meant. Although, I've met people that were confirmed at 12 that haven't moved anywhere either. You, you, you know what I mean? That's the mystery of it, is that it really can work regardless of your age. In some ways, I'm up here trying to make it difficult because a 12-year-old, like a 10-year-old, doesn't have their frontal lobe, right? So do they know what they're committing to? But sort of, as I said, even in marriage, I, I didn't know what I was committing to two years ago, right? And, and I know what I'm committing to now, but that might change in another couple of weeks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Life has this funny way of doing that. So it's this commitment, it's this commitment and this fidelity um, exactly because the future's unknown, right? And, and I think maybe it can become a more meaningful milepost later in life, although I'll tell you, when I got confirmed at 31 or 32, it wasn't like I said, now I'm an adult. I, I sort of thought, because I'm an adult, I can do this. But it, it wasn't a now, does it make sense what I'm saying? So we do this a lot of different ways. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, great question. So the question is, if confirmation is a rite of passage, and by the way, I'm going to tell you, I'm not sure that it is anymore. I, I think there's not lots of rites of passage anymore. I'm just going to say that up front, which I think is actually hurtful to us socially. Um, but if it is, is it like a bar mitzvah, which happens, you know, if you're a boy at 13, and only recently Reformed Jews and some conservative Jews have allowed girls to have bat mitzvahs. That's not in the Torah, you should know. So that's like an, an invention. Women's rights is an invention of modernity. And, and that can happen as early as 12, interestingly enough, because in the Hebrew tradition, girls become women at 12 and boys become men at 13. And you do have to do some preparation for your bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah. Specifically, you have to be able to read Hebrew out of the Torah. Now, if you're Orthodox, women aren't allowed to do that, which is why they can't have bat mitzvahs. If you're a conservative, conservative Jew, 
Conservative Jew really just means somewhere between extremely liberal and extremely uh, conservative. And that's a really wide band width, right? So if you're a conservative one, women don't have bat mitzvahs. You don't do that, right? But, but there's a lot of room for middle on over for that to happen. Then women study the Torah. And, you know, for, people, for most people, um, biblical Hebrew is honestly is a dead language. So modern Hebrew and biblical Hebrew, those are different languages. And often, if you want to do this, you don't just read the Torah. You have to cant it. You know, there's, there's a hymnody to it. Sort of like when we, when we chant the Psalms. It's not really singing. It's kind of rhythmic talking with a tune. Does that make sense? Like early rap used to be. So it's kind of like rap in the Torah. That's what you've got to be able to do. And that actually takes a lot of time. And then, of course, you have to know it because you're going to read it. But then you really need to be familiar with the 613 commands that are lifted from the Torah. 613. Those are called the mitzvot, which means commandments. When you know those and you can read Hebrew, you see you become a son of the commandment, a bar mitzvah, or a daughter, a bat mitzvah, right? And then the, theoretically, in old times, that's when you became an adult man, was at 13. And that's when you got gifts for adulthood, which has turned out to be kind of like the super sweet 16, if you know anything about that. I mean, people are getting maybe $30,000 on their bar mitzvah. Right, that becomes a college fund, and that's to help them become adults. I've never been to a confirmation celebration like that, <laughs> right? Because in some ways, it's like having a wedding, a bar mitzvah is. I mean, with a band and huge food and things like that, right? Um, it's really a big deal. Has anybody been to a confirmation that was that staged? It actually would be kind of a cool thing to do, except it's extravagantly expensive, right? <laughs> but it would be kind of a cool thing to do. A faux mitzvah, non-sectarian. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, well, I don't know what the practice is now, but when I was confirmed, that was you. You couldn't receive communion until after you were confirmed. The practice has changed, and I'm actually thankful theologically for that. Right? We've talked about that a little bit because I think the question is: Does a ceremony make you worthy to come to God's table, or are you worthy because God made you? I mean, I actually think that's really good thinking. Of course, I understand that you, you know, for me in my church, because I didn't actually grow up Southern Baptist. I came, I went there when I was 10. But before I was 10, we went to the independent Christian church, which is like the Church of Christ, not the united one, like the divided Church of Christ, with a piano. So we were liberal because we didn't sing a cappella. But let me tell you, that was the only liberal thing we had was that piano. So we couldn't have the Lord's Supper, which we had every week, Every single week. Couldn't have it until we were baptized. And so in some ways, right, what kid doesn't want that so that then they can be treated like all the adult membership? I mean, that was an incentive, right? The membership has its privileges, right? So at 10, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a grown-up. You know, that was, that was the deal. And confirmation, I think, in some ways, do that, especially if you know that confirmation is going to happen when you're 12 or when you're 11, you, you sort of you're ready. I think now, though, what's happened is institutional churches have really fallen in attendance, right? So who knows if it's going to be 12? It could be 30. It could be 50, right? And to withhold communion from somebody because they haven't had, it doesn't seem like it makes sense. I have a question about Judaism. If, uh, your brother, for example, oh, yeah. I'm still not really sure he's completely converted in like the religious ceremony. She's asking about my brother who's an Orthodox Jew. So that was my question. If you are physically an adult, over 21, etc., and you decide that's the place for you to worship. What is it? What do they do for those people? Well, so if you're a boy, right, I mean, this is the interesting thing, right? If you're a boy, the, the sign of entrance into the covenant is circumcision. But you could have had that already having not been Jewish, right? So then what do they do? Do they baptize you? I mean, I think it depends on each rabbi. I think there's a, there's a ceremony you go through of conversion, right? Because ultimately Judaism is an identity that passes on, you know, it's hereditary, you know? Only maybe 1,200 years ago, it changed from paternity to maternity, right? So Judaism is dependent now on your mother. But that's not always been the case. It was paternal. Now, if you want proof in the pudding, go ahead and read the genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. 
where Jesus is a son of David, that's not traced through Mary. Which is interesting because Joseph isn't Jesus' daddy anyway. I mean, it's really sort of a strange thing that Jesus is a son of David through Joseph, who was not his father. Does, does it make sense what I'm saying? If you doubt me, go back and read Matthew chapter, uh, the first couple chapters of Matthew and Luke. Again, Mary's genealogy is not presented to you. Jesus' descendant of David comes through Joseph, who once again was not his dad. <laughs> okay? um, so the maternity thing is like, a, like, I used to know the critical moment in time when it happened, and I just, I've forgotten as I've aged, but it's, it's not as old as you think it is. So, so what does it look like now? Well, what's interesting, right, is that Judaism is not evangelical. They don't actively try to make new Jewish people. If people are attracted, this is always how it's been, actually. And one of the differences between Christianity and Judaism is that people were, you know, the Christian community was looking to convert people to, to this, this particular way. And Paul doing that actively was a new thing. And he started, interestingly, not with random Greek people, with people who were interested in Judaism, but didn't want to convert. Because the biggest thing you had to do to convert was be circumcised. And as an adult male, that's a pretty big step to go through in general when there's flint knives and no anesthesia, right? You just got to think through that. It's a big safety risk too, you know? Um, so, so that's one of those things now. And then there, there, there could be not a baptism, but I told you the mikvah is, is Jewish. And it may be kind of like as an adult that you kind of need to be ready to do something like a bar mitzvah. Right? That is, you need to be able to cant Hebrew and know the Siddur and know the Siddur is like the prayer book. So we have the Book of Common Prayer. When you go to a synagogue, there's a siddur in front of you, and that sort of tells you the prayers for the day, and they, they vary by season, just like ours, vary by season. So you need to have some familiarity with that. You need to be able to read the Torah, possibly in Hebrew, and it, all this depends whether you're Orthodox, conservative, or a Reformed. Yeah, but there's no clear-cut conversion right. I mean, if I asked you <clears throat> today, how do you convert to being an Episcopalian, what would your answer be? I don't actually think there's a conversion ceremony, do you? I mean, now in the Southern Baptist Church I grew up in, the way you converted to Christianity was you said the sinner's prayer. You, are you familiar with this one? The sinner's prayer is the admission that you're a sinner, that Jesus died for your sins, and you accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior. You did those three things, and then you were a Christian forever. But there wasn't an elaborate ceremony. Like, you could do that at a laundromat. You didn't have to do it in a church. Um, and, and then there was no bishop or anything like that. I mean, like, like my daughter could do that with somebody and it was valid forever. Does, does it make sense, what I'm saying? I mean, I don't really know how you do it here. You, you could get baptized if you weren't, right? It would be in You could have an altar call, and that's what you did at the altar call, though. You came up and you said that prayer with the preacher. And you became a, you were a Baptist. And you were a Baptist. That's it. Um, when I decided to become an Episcopalian, I was received into the church at confirmation, but not confirmed again. That's right. It's kind of like remembering your baptism. With class, yes, the same thing. And... and we had somebody get no, actually have somebody received. We had somebody reaffirm their confirmation of Alice last year with the bishop. They went through the class and they and they did and they did that. So you can do that, but but what's important, right, is that your ability to receive communion or marriage or anointing with oil is not contingent upon being received in the church, right? Neither is membership in a local parish, <laughs> not contingent on your being confirmed. The diocese wants you to be confirmed if you want to be on the search committee for a new rector. But I don't even think you have to. I just think they really want you to. When I, when I came into the Episcopal Church, I was, I've been active in the Presbyterian Church for a long time. So the priest gave me the option of being confirmed or not. And so I said, I'd like to be confirmed, which was really handy because when my son got married in Austria to a Catholic woman, if I hadn't had the confirmation papers that I was oh, okay, <laughs> he couldn't have. Now, I, this is an interesting place where we're going to have to stop for a second. But that's such an interesting thing to think about. I mean, I just want to be really serious with you for a second, and it's going to sound like I'm being nasty, and I'm not. That marriage in the church was contingency on your having papers. 
Because uh, Douglas had been confirmed in Aust Australia. So actually, he was confirmed into the Anglican Church, but that didn't count. Somehow, that didn't count. That identity, I just want to tell you, makes me very cynical about the church. Think, think through that for a second, right? That a priest would only perform the marriage if you had the right paperwork. It's a little scary, isn't it? It's scary. I understand where it comes from. I do, right? But it's, it's, a, little, it's a little scary. The Europeans are very much into documentation. Oh, let's not just think that's other people. <laughs> That's right. We and, and this is this interesting thing, right? I mean, again, you, you may hear this at 1030. I don't know if I'll end up saying it again. But theoretically, the church is the only organization in the world that exists for people who are not members of it. I mean, that's sort of the goal, right? Is that membership, the privileges of church membership are serving other people, not receiving benefit. I mean, I think, I think this is right. I think the privilege of church membership is being a more wholehearted servant, not receiving better church goodies than non... I mean, I just, I think it's really, I, I know it's funny, but in general, we're oriented that members get better stuff than non-members, aren't we? Whether it's the AARP, right, or an educator's group, membership has its privileges. You get better stuff. And I'm worried, I'm worried about that for the church. I want to talk about confirmation more with you next week. Okay, so I better stop. Thank you for being good sports. <laughs>